This is David Nowland with the OSU Extension Service. This morning I have uh, Congressman Frank Lucas with us today, who is the uh, Oklahoma's third congressional district representative. Good morning, Congressman. Hello, David. Good to be with you. You mentioned that third congressional district. That's a nice, compact congressional district that's literally 40% of the land mass of the state. Yeah. 32 of the 77 counties, all the way from Caddo County to the Kansas line and from uh, Skytook, if you've been there, to uh, to New Mexico. Right, and all the Oklahoma panhandle out there, so it's covered a lot of, lot of area. Lots of good folks, more cattle than people. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think uh, in Caddo County it's uh, four to one, mm-hmm. four cows to every person, so... Anyway, and you have a few cattle out there in uh, that Cheyenne area somewhere. Absolutely. Linda and I are cow-calf people. Uh, the wheat farming is primarily support the cattle. Most of my wheat ground as a member of Congress I put back either to lo- put into lovegrass or plains blue stem to, mm-hmm. again, complement the cattle program. My wife refers to herself as a rancher. She refers to me as a farmer. That's just fine. <laughs> Since the winter of 1888, uh, any historian will tell you, all uh, all cattlemen west of the Mississippi River have been, uh, because of that snowstorm, have been farmers, too. Right. <laughs> because livestock, the old principle in the early day of the cattle industry, uh, was wiped out by that. Anyway, it's uh, it's a great life, and it enables me to come home every weekend. Well, that's right. And you... I promise you, it's a calmer world in Oklahoma than it is in Washington, D.C. <laughs> these days. I bet so. A little more relaxing to come home. And I guess you grew up right there in Cheyenne. Go to school right there in Cheyenne? Absolutely. I was born in the county hospital in Cheyenne in 1960. I went to a grade school at a place called Crawford, which is not there anymore back in the days when it was first grade through eighth grade. <laughs> I graduated in an eighth grade class of 13, went to high school at Cheyenne. I graduated in a huge class of 40, which uh, in Roger Mills County standards was a big class of yes. 40 in 1978. My uh, senior year in high school in FFA, and I'd been a 4-H in grade school, FFA member in high school, I, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, co-signed my note at the bank and co-signed the lease, and I decided I was going to be, as a senior in high school, a real wheat farmer, a real cattleman. <laughs> and after my first wheat crop in 1978, David, when basically Mother Nature did not cooperate, uh, well... Let's just say, instead of going to Oklahoma State that fall, I went to a year of junior college in Sarah, Oklahoma. Uh, had all those wonderful basic classes. Uh, <laughs> my 79 wheat crop was dramatically better, thank goodness. Yeah. Banker was willing to work with me one more year. There you and go. I went to Oklahoma State and graduated from OSU in 1982. So, yeah. Well, wheat prices never have exactly uh, been fantastic. So I imagine it's the livestock side that's probably been a little more profitable. Yeah. So I guess your wife, yeah, your wife was, can take all the credit for keeping you going there. Yep. So, that's part of the challenges uh, when I was chairman of the House Agriculture Committee and we did the 2014 Farm Bill was trying to explain to people across the country the diversity uh, in, in American agriculture, the wonderful agriculture it is, but the diversity in crops the diversity in soil, the diversity in rainfall. I mean, even the difference between Roger Mills County and Caddo right. is substantial on rainfall, and you have lots of good farmland and some really amazing creek and river bottoms mm-hmm. uh, in that area. But yes. in, in the farm bill process, trying to explain to my colleagues from Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, that in Oklahoma we measured our soil in inches. They measured in feet, 
which is a real difference, <laughs> as you know. And the the one other thing I try to get across to them, this custom in the Midwest of praying for dry weather so you can uh, plant, right. and praying for dry weather so you can harvest. If my father had taught me praying for dry weather, <laughs> he would have thumped me upside the head. That's right. I mean, every prayer until I was 18 years old, I can't remember that didn't have at least one request to the Lord for a little rain. I mean, <laughs> that's just go. the nature of Oklahoma. Right. And that area up there in the in the central part of the U.S. is 6% organic matter, and we're at a half a percent. So exactly. uh, they've got a whole lot more yield potential with their rain. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole different world. I imagine you have a lot of time, too, just basically working with people that have no agriculture background at all, uh, trying to explain a lot of the agriculture since you've been working with the Farm Bill for so many years. Oh, absolutely, David. The Ag Committee has consistently, in my tenure, been, the best way to describe it is about one-third people who are there because it has uh, jurisdiction over all the social nutrition programs, food stamps, WIC, school lunch, that kind of thing. That's basically one-third of the members only serve on the committee because of the, the social nutrition programs. Right. There's about a third of the committee who are on there because of production ag, they care about crops, they care about crop insurance, they care about conservation. There's, in that remaining third, there's a mix of about half who are there because literally they are interested in conservation, soil, water, wildlife. Uh, They're concerned about uh, rural development and ag research. Think about the folks maybe who are not so much involved in production agriculture but live in communities where making sure that the infrastructure is critically important. Mm-hmm. And in the other half of that remaining third, quite literally, I don't think they have a clue why they're there. <laughs> they just don't have a clue. But that, you know, that could be any committee group anywhere at any time. Right. Uh, literally, when I chaired the committee, we would organize our bill markups in such a way that uh, when we would have a series of bills, we'd first do the nutrition titles, because typically those folks then would get up and leave after you'd finished the bills they cared about. Then we would move on to conservation, rural development, the things that affect wildlife, hunting, fishing. Typically, uh, that third of the committee then would get up and leave. And then we would take up crop insurance. We'd take up the commodity titles, uh, ag research, those kind of things at the end of the committee meeting when it was primarily people who understood what we were voting about. Right. So, well, that's Some might good... call that strategy. I just call it <laughs> practical legislating in a complicated world. There you go. That's, that's like a good strategy. I like that. And uh, you had a little bit of experience at, at, at the state le- legislature before you went oh, yes. to... Uh... Before I was ever elected to Congress, I served for a period of time as the vice county chairman at the Roger Mills County Election Board. So I spent oh, time in my yeah. local courthouse. I watched, uh, as we've had lots of controversy in the last 20 years, I watched how the election process firsthand from the election board's perspective was conducted in Oklahoma. And by the way whether it was the paper ballot system or the electronic paper ballot system we've used since 1992, there's a reason, David, in Oklahoma, we know on election night early who's won, and there's a reason that person has really won. (laughs) The rest of the country would adopt our system, our system, we wouldn't have all these problems. But after my time at the county election board, uh, my neighbors persuaded me to run for state representative, uh, all or parts of six counties in the central and northwest part of the state, uh, I didn't get elected the first time. Uh, I was a 24-year-old male, single, uh, just a puppy, not quite fitting the demographics of my district. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tied the incumbent, who was also from my home community, and 
I won his precincts and I won my precincts. So I ran again in uh, 86, came up 96 votes short out of 14,000 cast. That was kind of a complicated year for somebody on my side of the <laughs> of the ballot. Yeah. Uh, ran a third time after some real persuasion from a, a number of people that, uh, that I had to try one more time. One uh, was reelected really without challenge, uh, without problems mm-hmm. the next couple times. And then when Congressman English announced his retirement at the end of 1993, uh, again, my neighbors and the folks I served with in the legislature said, you know, the real problem is not Oklahoma City. The real problem is Washington, D.C. Right. You understand we got to have somebody. Uh, you need to do this. And I ran in a five-person primary, came in second on on uh, on primary night. If you see David a trend here, mm-hmm. I have to keep plugging along really hard <laughs> and won the runoff, won the special general election, and have been a member ever since. Uh, so I come from an area where there was basically nobody at the time who could vote in my primary, and I didn't have very many warm bodies to start with in my home county, so I had to get out and work. I had to get out and, and, and hustle all over my congressional district as I had all over my state representative district. And sometimes that makes you a better public official oh, when yes. it's hard and right. when you're from a part where you've got to convince everybody from a whole range of counties and a whole range of communities that you're under, you understand uh, their perspective and you want to work on their behalf. It, right. it made me a better person even though uh, if you look at a picture of me before I ran for Congress in 1994 and after I ran for Congress, there might be about a 25-pound difference, but <laughs> it may be a better candidate. Well, I tell you what's unique and what's really good about, about you is that you have county government knowledge, you have state government knowledge, and federal, and rarely do we have anybody with all three. We have a lot that don't even have two of those, and uh, that causes us problem even at the state not understanding county government we run into that a lot. So Absolutely. that's really great that you have the knowledge of all three because we get state legislature legislation passed sometimes that affects the county and their budget. They don't, they don't have the money to cover. So uh, it's really great uh, that you can understand all three, and I think that's probably you know, a big part of, of, of your success. Absolutely. And there, there's something to be said for the courthouse officers, whether it's the commissioner's or the, the countywide officers, they are on a level of contact with folks every day in their entire constituency that is different than being a member of Congress. We're in session nine months out of the year. I come home every weekend, but we're still in session months nine out of, out of the year during the week. Mm-hmm. The legislature's in session typically from the first Monday of February to almost the last uh, Friday in May, they're home the rest of the time, but still, during those critical session months, every day of the week, typically, they're in Oklahoma City. Right. Your county officers, when they're not in that courthouse, they're in the local grocery store, <laughs> or they're in church on Sunday morning, or they're at the local basketball games or football games, or they're at the local group meetings. They're Kiwanians, they're Rotarians, they're mm-hmm. Farm Bureau members, they're you know, Farmers Union members. There is, there is something to be said about local government, about that constant interaction with your folks. And I would argue that's why typically county government in places like Oklahoma is run so efficiently on such tight budgets uh, by people who are so cautious 
uh, and so responsive their constituents. Uh, it, it's something. It's why we have the federal form of government. Why we have to maintain state government and local government. There's some very liberal people I serve with here in D.C. who would tell you everything could be done better from Washington D.C. No, that's not true. <laughs> right. Everything cannot be done better from the East Coast. It simply cannot. And. My personal experiences, as you've noted, uh, give me a, a great appreciation for that. Uh, now, there are things on the federal level, uh, farm bills, again, where we every five years approximately do legislation that state government or local government couldn't do, uh, crop insurance, uh, the commodity titles, uh, major conservation programs, rural development, ag research. Uh, you, you, you have to have a federal level to address those kind of issues because everything affects the entire country uh, and and that serves a purpose as i alluded to earlier my biggest challenge up here was even within it has been up here even within the ag committee not everybody understands what life on main street uh, right uh, in, in Arna, anadarko or cheyenne or boy city or is like uh, and typically they're not willing to come out to the countryside so i have to along with my fellow country colleagues constantly be working on this education mm -hmm. process to make sure that folks understand we are out there we do matter we contribute to the to their energy supply their food supply we we contribute to the quality of life for the whole country and they can't ignore us even though there is a tendency sometimes by the talking heads on the national media to want to do that right and i, I know uh I, I, legislators have struggled state and probably federal to get feedback sometimes from their local areas uh, where, I, where, of course, with the county, you're, you get instant feedback when you go out to the grocery yeah, store right. or the gas station. But mm -hmm. uh, that feedback is, is uh, so important, and uh, I imagine you have good ways for them, suggestions for people to contact you uh, to do those kind of things. Um, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in this electronic world, I mean, uh, some people want to use uh, – their computers, so you just use your search engine or pull out your iPhone or your whatever kind of smartphone and just type in Congressman Frank Lucas. Right. It'll take you to a variety of websites from Facebook on down where you can communicate with me. It'll take you to my website where you can send me an email. Uh, as I always tell people, if you don't communicate with me, if you don't call us, if you don't write us a letter, if you don't ask your question, Number one, how can we answer your question? And number two, how can we factor in your experiences, what you've gone through, what you're dealing with, and how we make decisions up here? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just important. And okay. until COVID-19 rolled through, I averaged 32 town meetings a year. I'm probably <laughs> close to eight or 900, maybe nearly 1,000 town meetings in my career in Congress. I always try to do at least one in every county every year. Give everybody a chance to come look me in the eye. Now, with COVID and all this sort of stuff, that's kind of turned things upside down. And I'm trying to figure out at what point do we get on the vaccination level where it's practical to have public y'all come, as we would say in Roger Mills County, group <laughs> gatherings right. uh, to be together again. Right. Uh, and as soon as CDC and the attending physician's office and I can agree on what it is, I want to go back to looking folks in the eye. Right. I learn stuff, our, David. When I'm with my constituents, sometimes they chew on me, sometimes they <laughs> talk to me, uh, but I learn stuff. Right. Well, you know, we're we're opening up. Things are opening up now, and I think it's going to be a lot better in the next few months. So uh, hopefully by this fall we'll be back to the full speed again. Uh, you might talk to us a little bit. You just uh, worked with some uh, rural STEM education 
work, an act that went through. You might tell us a little bit about what that's about. Everybody thinks of me as the ag guy because I was chairman of the ag committee, a long-serving member, farmer by trade, degree from Oklahoma State in agricultural economics. But right now, I'm the lead Republican on the science committee. If we were in the majority, I'd be the chairman. We're in the minority, so I'm the ranking member. And we've looked at what we've gone through in this last year, how COVID disrupted life, uh, education, disrupted everything. Mm-hmm. And it's become quite clear that, number one, the jobs of the future are, are, are what they like to refer to up here, STEM-related. It's things involving mathematics and science and engineering, computer programming, <clears throat> all of those kind of things. And those are going to be the best-paying jobs of the future. So not everybody at home is going to have an opportunity in rural America to be able to farm uh, or ranch. So there's got to be opportunities. And there will be people like myself who use being a member of Congress as the day job to go with the farm on the weekends and when I'm home. There's got to be opportunities for people to live up to their potential. And that's what this Rural STEM Education Research Act is about, is to direct the National Science Foundation to begin to look at how do we how we make sure teachers have the level of expertise they can teach on these subjects? How do we make sure students have access to those kind of teachers and resources so that they know what the opportunities out there are so they can live up to themselves? Uh, and, and there's some things that are you know, obvious, like making sure that the students have some hands-on opportunities within their communities. If you live near a big university, if you live near a big city, there are factories and there's universities. There's all sorts of opportunities. But if you live in rural Oklahoma, that's a little more complicated. So how do we make sure that things like an agriculture right now is one of the most advanced technology industries out there? Think about precision agriculture, the tractors, use all that sort of stuff. For instance, how do we make sure that students have an opportunity perhaps to be around equipment dealers to understand just how advanced the tractors are and the equipment they're selling in the community and that that would provide a job opportunity. Right. There's also some things like just making sure we got enough broadband, access to the Internet. In the apartment, David, I rent here in D.C., 400 square feet. It's called an efficiency. It's a box with a door and a window <laughs> for more than uh, the payment on Linda's farmhouse back home, I would note for the record the rent is. Nonetheless, I have 308 megabytes upload and 308 megabytes download. Where Linda and I live on the farm... I have a download speed of four, <laughs> and when I upload, it's not a megabyte; it's a half a meg. Wow! It's hard to conduct Zoom calls or Team calls or WebEx calls, let alone the challenges my neighbors' kids went through trying to use distance learning through all the COVID stuff. So, how do we expand internet access? How do we make the broadband more available? Uh, we're working on that, all those kind of things. But the bottom line is this. STEM is a great job opportunity area of the future, maybe the next 20 or 30 years. We need to make sure that everybody in our community, no matter what they look like, no matter what, where they live, no matter what their background is, everybody has the potential ability to live up, up to their uh, skills. Right. If you have the desire, if you have the ability, you should have the opportunity to to develop those skills in a way that will make the quality of your life better. And by the way, you say, why is the federal government doing this? The more talented and bright people working in the economy, the more efficient business and the economy is going to be, the more productive we're going to be, the more competitive we're going to be with the rest of the world. 
We don't want to get behind places like China. We do not want to be behind them. Right. Yeah, we see uh, areas of Colorado where they have high-speed Internet even all out through in the mountain areas, and people work from their home, you know, from anything, from graphic design to all types of computer uh, programming and those kind of jobs where in rural Oklahoma we just don't have that ability yet. Now, if it's coming, I know uh, companies are working hard to try to get that high-speed Internet out there, but at the fewer people, the more investment with the less return that they're going to get. So any uh, any support towards that science that we can get is great. As, uh, as an And we may be looking at perhaps uh, Internet delivered by satellite as an option on down the road in the near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we lay more fiber? I mean, whatever the options are, if we're not a part of it in rural America, we're going to be left behind, and we can't allow that to happen. Right. You know, we, we, uh, the education of science is, is uh, something that we work on with Extension all the time. Even in towns with only two or 3,000 people, we have a lot of kids that grow up in those communities with no understanding of where their food comes from. And uh, those, those kind of programs are real important to get into school to uh, educate the kids on agriculture, and that's something we work on. And sometimes I'm amazed at how little science people receive. Uh, I know the school system kind of got away from art and things like that for a few years but now it seems like they've gotten a little bit away from science and uh, the science is more important than ever we seem to have a, a, an anti-science group going out in some of these cities so uh, it, I know that science education is really important it's critically important Dan. I always admit and enthusiastically point out that I'm a product of land-grant university Oklahoma State University People sometimes forget when President Lincoln signed the Morrell Act in 1862, it was the first time in the history of the world when anyone with enough energy and effort uh, could secure a university, a college education. That's the amazing thing about the land grants in not just Oklahoma but around the country. We have been ahead of our times for almost 160 years. We need just to continue this kind of investment, enable our fellow citizens to live up to their potential. Right. We've had tours from other countries from people come through to see the extension service to see how it works, you know, just to, because, you know, our job is to get education out to the farmers to keep them up with the latest research and technology and information. And, and other countries have seen that and they want to copy it. And uh, but the, the science and technology has taken off at such a speed. Uh, it's challenging for anyone to keep up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're entirely right. The land grant principle of research. Uh, education, extension, creating the knowledge, training uh, the next generation to understand the knowledge, and with extension, sharing it with everyone so that we can all advance together. Right. Well, let's see. What else? We I, I, know, I know the only thing I've been to Cheyenne for has been the Washita Battlefield Museum, which was lots of fun. And uh, that's about the only thing I've gotten out there for. Uh, but uh, it is a nice area, and, and I think they uh, have really some fine people, and you're one of those products that came from that area that we're all very thankful for. I appreciate that, and I have a strong uh, Caddo County connection. My maternal grandparents, uh, in the drought of the 50s, when things were so tough in farming in, in the western part of the state, my grandfather ultimately worked for 10 years in the maintenance department at Western Farmers. All right. So as a little, little boy, I can remember playing in the public parks in Anadarko, I still, uh, once a year, make a pilgrimage back to the little house they rented, uh, kind of on the southwest side of town. So I have uh, I have very fond memories as a little boy with my grandparents 
uh, in Anadarko. That's good. A very diverse and amazing community. Right, and Anadarko is is really special. You just won't find the diversity in race or anything really as you find in Anadarko. It's just a, a bunch of great people. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. This was a, a great visit, and uh, I know your time is valuable, so I just appreciate you, you taking the time to be with us. I look forward to our next conversation. All righty. This is David Nowen with the OSU Extension Service. I've had Oklahoma's 3rd Congressional District Representative, Frank Lucas, with us this morning, and we hope you're having a great day.